Well, good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you and give a warm welcome to each one. And it's good to see so many come to this service of uh, celebration and thanksgiving. Um, I think, forgive me saying this, but I hate the crematorium. It's the house of the business of death. And this place is the house of life. And we are here to celebrate uh, the life of Adele, but also that it's not gone, that she is more alive now than she ever was. So let's begin in prayer. We ask, O Lord, your blessing upon us as we gather here. We thank you that we are able to be here to celebrate. We mourn, but not as those who have no hope. Indeed, our hope is beyond our understanding. Lord, we thank you for the life of Adele. We thank you for 80 years lived to the full. We thank you that even the presence of so many people here testify to that. Family and brothers and sisters in the Lord. Those who worked with her, those who shared with her in so many ways. We pray your blessing upon us all as we worship you just now, especially upon those who will mourn her the most, those who will wake up every day or every week and remember her. But we come particularly to worship you, her God. And we thank you, Lord, that in a way we can barely comprehend that now she is truly at rest and at peace, that the music is greater, that the joy is deeper, and that there is no sin, no illness, no loss of memory, no lack of clarity in thought or in sight, but in everything she sees and knows and hears and feels with a completeness and a joy that we can only look for. May it be that as we worship you and thank you for her, that we ourselves would have some taste of your presence and your joy with us. Be especially with David with the children and the grandchildren. O oh Lord, we ask that in moments of sorrow that they would know the joy of having had such a wife and mother and grandmother and sister. Lord, hear our prayer and draw near to each one as we worship you in your name. Amen. I'm going to begin by singing the marvelous hymn, See What a Morning, Gloriously Bright, with the Dawning of Hope in Jerusalem. Uh, we'll stand to sing. Amen. Please be seated. Betty Ellis is now going to come and read from God's Word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place 
throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed 
in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 
So whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Therefore, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Now Adele's younger brother, Professor John Macbeth, will play a tribute. Thank you. It's you encourage me to be irreverent. <laughs> Not a, re- a reverend. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, David. Um, well, Adele, if you're looking below, thanks for being such an incredibly tolerant and understanding sister to a tearaway young brother. So I apologize now for all the times I actually made you get so angry you had to pull my hair out. Um, She was not like that, but I contributed a bit. And... Len, you may remember the name we gave to Adele after she was kicked by a horse. We called her Kickball, which is a very strange name, but it stuck with her for quite a while. Um, You will also maybe remember the time I rolled her up in a carpet, Um, but she was very tolerant about that. Uh, On a Sunday in Toronto, I always remember her incredible discomfort when we went out. Don Fish, Don Fish, remember Don Fish? (laughs) Arrived. I think he had a little thing for Adele at that time. And he arrived and he said, it was a Sunday afternoon and we were out on the lawn and he, he had a ball and he threw it to Adele and she stood back and she was incredibly embarrassed because it was a Sunday and she wasn't going to catch a ball on a Sunday. That tells you something about our upbringing, doesn't it? Um, but something else about it, I mean, she was, she was a swat. She really was. I mean, so while she was locked in her room studying to get a first-class honours degree, I was climbing out of windows and disappearing and then determined to fail all my exams. Um, so that's why I didn't see as much of Adele as I might have, but also because... Um, we had the, our father had a terrible habit of sending us away from home. Do you remember at the age of, I think, about nine, Adele was sent to France for a year, and she lived at the Couveliers in, I can't remember where, I think it was Aix-en-Provence, but when she came back and she could hardly speak any English, and I was asking her, what happened to that key? She said, the key is in the pocket of Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, of course, she went off to Arles for a year to, to study for her, um, her MA. 
And then as soon as she came back, I went to Macon for a year to study. And then she went off to Italy uh, for a year to do her thesis on Lampedusa's book Il Gattapardo. Um, and came back speaking Italian, just for, just for a change. And you may remember the terrible wind-up you do, because we talked about it Len, the other night, where she would, I would say something ridiculous, and she would say, Sei spiritis, spiritoso, meaning you are so witty. Sei spiritoso, you are so witty. And what did we do? We would go, spiritoso. No, I didn't say spiritoso. I said, sei spiritoso. And we would go, e spiritoso. <laughs> Or say stupido. <laughs> um, she was not one given to the great drinking of the wine because one, as you know, David, one glass of wine on the delve was tiddly. And I remember you and I in Barcelona one day walking up the road trying to prop her up after one small glass of, of wine. Uh, but I suppose that's, that's a virtue, really. Uh, <laughs> Um, she had a bit this, this is something going back a very long way but Adele had you developed a car phobia because my father was in the habit of just rolling cars over from time to time <laughs> he was the world's worst driver and um, you may remember coming back once from, from where was it from Aberdeen from Old Meldrum and coming round a corner and smashing straight into a, a lorry that was coming down. And all these holidays we had abroad, I'd say, Len, would you please drive? Because your father would drive along totally oblivious. So Fidel had a slightly car phobia. It's entirely understandable. But I think, I think she eventually got over that. Um, you may have seen, some of you may have seen, I know... I was talking to Mark and John and Graham the other day, and maybe Paul as well for that matter, about the film Sliding Doors. And um, it's, in case you haven't seen it, I do recommend it, but it's where Gwyneth Paltrow runs down the stairs to get on the underground, and she just misses it. So they replay the film, but this time she gets in through the sliding doors. And that film follows two trajectories of what might have happened if either of those things had turned out. Um, but the sliding doors did remind me of suddenly Adele, when we were living in BTI, suddenly would disappear from time to time. She would slide out of the door, and I didn't know for a very long time what she was up to, David. <laughs> um, but I have a strong suspicion... <laughs> that uh, she, was meeting, she was meeting Dave. I didn't think Adele was capable of anything like that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, she used, to, she used to disappear, and eventually I discovered, I think, that uh, she was going to see this guy, David Ellis. And may I say, David, she could not have find, found... I'm even losing my tenses here... She, I think I'm going into the present suddenly, but uh, she couldn't have found anybody who was more kind, devoted, right to the very end, David. We sat together, and you sat for those last two or three days with Adele, and she could not have had a, a greater, more devoted husband than, than you, and um, we love you 
very much for what you've been to Adele, David. And you also happened, with a little complicity from her, to produce four wonderful young men. And I know you are, you're also modest about this, but um, John, Graham, Paul, and Mark are just incredible tribute to both to you and to Adele, because I think it's kind of shared. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's been really a pleasure to, to know you, and, to, and as you waited there in the hospital these last two or three days, and you were there for her all the time. Um, so, Adele, if you are watching, I'm sure you are, um, thanks for taking the time out to, to listen to this, and you can go back now. Thank you. I thought you were being very brave, David, saying just be yourself. <laughs> I'd heard enough about you to worry. <laughs> so, We're going to sing again uh, a song, There is a Hope That Burns Within My Heart. Uh, David was somewhat shocked that some of us didn't know it. So what we're going to do is the band are going to play the tune through once, and then after they've done that, we'll stand and we'll sing. We'll also pay a tribute. Twenty seventh of April, nineteen thirty six, to the tenth of November, twenty sixteen. Adele Ann Ellis. Most of you will have known my mother as Adele. I've known her for all of my nearly fifty years, and I've never once called her that. I'm not alone. Four people here have only ever called her Mum. Four more have come to call her mother through marriage, and ten more have only ever called her granny. Some relationships are so profound that we use the relational word over and against any other, including the proper name. But this is familiar to Christians. Then Jesus answered, when you pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven. And as we know, perhaps even the angels can't say that. Perhaps as a result of that life-defining Relationship. No child can really imagine uh, their parents' existence before they were born. Even as I grew into adulthood, I heard stories like my Uncle John's of my mother's adventures before we became part of her story. And I heard them, as it seemed to me, with a degree of wonder, like news from another country, of a life lived large and exotic and nomadic. Registering our death with the registrar of births, deaths, and marriages last Friday with my father and, and my brother Mark um, looking at her birth certificate, I was struck by the thought that the town in which her birth was registered, Leopoldville, doesn't even exist anymore. It's modern-day Kinshasa. Even the Belgian Congo no longer exists. Betty and I went with David and Shona, two of her grandchildren, to Southeast Asia to see, amongst other places, one of the places where I had lived and grown up as a child, and not one building that I remembered was still there. But that's trivial in comparison. For my mother... The child of missionary parents with their hearts set on pilgrimage, she had no permanent home, and even her country has been renamed. I knew of her double first-degree honors in languages, but her intelligence never found expression in one-upmanship or showy display, but in the flashes of wit and deep, deep love of literature and poetry which she passed on to us. I don't know if it was a grief to her that none of us uh, followed in her, her footsteps, but we followed that our father genetically into scientific and um, 
technical subjects. But her love of literature remained in us as a, as a private passion. Shona remembers at family gatherings how she would quietly sneak out and go upstairs to where the bookcase was located, and she knew it wouldn't be long before Granny would notice that a child was missing from the gathering and would equally quietly slip out, slip upstairs, and sit down and read to her. Above the head of her bed at Meagle Country House was a copy of 1 Corinthians 13 done in her own beautiful calligraphy. Paul says there that love does not draw attention to itself. And for all her great learning and intelligence, Mum moved with an easy grace through the lives of those that knew her and loved her, never drawing attention to that hinterland of learning and reading. In fact, although she was intelligent and quick of mind, she was generally awful at telling jokes. But she laughed with genuine delight at everyone else's, delighted that they, not she, was the center of attention as they delivered the punchline. All her life, she was surrounded by boys, first by three brothers, no sisters, then a husband, then four boys. But God perhaps preserved the gentleness of women, one of his tenderest gifts to her, till her latter life in the form of the nursing care she received at Meagle Country House in her last years, last two years. There, despite the cruelty of the Alzheimer's, she loved and was loved. When Dad could no longer care for her as he wished, Rona and Karen and their team, round the clock, exemplified to us the Imago Dei, the image of God in caring for her. There's a line in Hamlet which I often think of when I think of my father's love for my mother. In it, Hamlet, speaking of his dead father's love for his mother, says of the murdered king, so excellent a king, so loving to my mother that he would not beteem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. And when I think that the man who loved his wife that well could be confident to leave her in the care of the staff at Meagle, I know it says more than words ever could about how highly we all as a family esteemed the loving, caring, patient, homely, gentle ethos of that place. Sitting in my father's dining room the morning she died, Mark, Graham, and I all retrieved spontaneously one common memory. We were on a beach and a family holiday in Java, playing in the sand dunes, when my mother, quite unreasonably, and with no warning whatsoever, began to do cartwheels. <laughs> Balance, poise, athleticism. Perfectly executed, despite the fact that unless she practiced in secret, she hadn't done it for decades. All of us boys were so surprised, we just stopped doing what we were doing, abandoned our play, and dropped our mouths wide open. Such was my surprise, I remember exactly what she was wearing, white flared 70s trousers and an Indonesian batik top. <laughs> um, none of us have mentioned it to each other since that time. In the days after Mum died, I received numerous very, very kind um, and thoughtful texts. And one day, a very dear friend sent me uh, a text saying, your mother is walking with her Lord in the cool of the evening of Eden. And I'm sure she is sometimes, but I rather more picture her doing cartwheels in utter exploding... <laughs> uncontainable happiness in his presence. Sharing just one cameo like that leads me to ask, have you ever been to a funeral where you thought the eulogy was adequate? I don't think so. In fact, the more you loved them and the better you knew them, the more inadequate you probably thought the eulogy was. Why? Because I think our expectations are understandable but impossible. We want that person to be set free in the eye of our imagination as they once were. In that sense, we want to see them again. And that isn't possible, not yet. It's beyond the craft of even the best wordsmith. We can't adequately describe another human being. Not in that ultimate sense. So I remember the family feasts and her amazing hospitality. And I remember FHB. 
I remember when she declared manners maketh man weak, when she grew frustrated in her entirely reasonable efforts to tame four feral children. Disgusted by our table manners, she decided to feed us a meal off newspaper spread on the dining room table to illustrate the shoddy consequences of our actions. And who should turn up at that meal time but one of our uncles? Um, <laughs> he couldn't stop laughing, and the grandeur of the lesson was entirely lost. I remember 101 Recipes for Mince. That was the title of a book she had. And the fact that she earned so many frequent flyer miles with the butcher that he used to give her one pound free with every ten she bought. And then she tried to broaden her repertoire and increase our, uh, our diet with liver and onions, which we hated. But I remember we always ate together at table. I remember her terrible sense of direction and her faulty personal thermostat, wearing sometimes six, seven or more layers, even in the height of summer. And I remember the amazing bread she made daily in a rusty old tin box, literally tin box, lifted and placed on top of a stove in Jakarta, three legs supported by the dodgy gas ring and the fourth balanced on a cork. I remember the letters, how many, many letters she wrote, often illustrating them with watercolors of life or Tintin or Narnian characters. Only one thing I don't remember. I cannot ever recall her complaining, ever, about anything. But I've always known, ever since the Alzheimer's disease began its long, slow theft, what memory would linger most and be most defining of her for me. I remember that apart from, I think, one week, literally seven nights, when I couldn't sleep through illness, every morning, every morning, whatever the day, whatever the, the day of the week, whatever the time, when I came down to breakfast, I found Mum seated at the dining room table reading her Bible. There were no exceptions I can remember apart from two weeks on one holiday in the Lake District in a house with wooden shutters on the windows when she wasn't woken by the light. She slept very lightly. Um, I didn't know she was capable of sleeping in, actually. So no exceptions. There she was reading her Bible. When I was a teenager in the 80s, I sent off for one of these um, get-rich-quick books. It was rubbish. I threw it away. But with some embarrassment, I do remember doing it. And I thought nothing more of it until many, many years later... And I found that mum had kept an A-fold, A5 trifold flyer that had fallen out of that mail shot and she'd used it as a bookmark in her Bible. She maybe still has it in the Bible. It had the firm slogan on the front and it read, The Secret of Real Wealth, How to Quietly Accumulate Real Wealth and Retire Rich. Well, better than those yuppie salesmen realized, she did quietly accumulate real wealth and retired rich. You will have your own recollections and profound memories that I've omitted and I've included some domestic and mild memories you might have bettered. There are many more examples of her godliness and faith in the book that Dad wrote, and we sang at the crematorium the hymn from which the last verse encapsulates the title of that book. But even if I shared a CV, a kind of catalogue of the years, that wouldn't do it, would it? You know the kind of thing that in the average lifetime you spend 25 years sleeping and so on? Well, I've reflected on our life together as a family... Mum spent 36 months pregnant. She spent 12 years dealing with toddlers under three and so on. But there's one statistic in this slightly strange way of looking at things that is sobering. She, that is both my parents, lived through a total of 30 years of separation from their four children between 1972 and 1984. 11, 8, 6, 5. Saying goodbye to four children going away to boarding school twice a year. Why? Because her Lord and Master asked it of her, and she knew him well enough to know that he would take good care of her children. I remember the joy of returning home as the taxing airplane reached its hold on the tarmac, 
We could always pick her out from the small figures in the distance, waving a light, large white terry nappy, which she'd kept for the purpose. And we always came home to our favorite food and pumpkin pie. And all holiday, she dropped everything, every wish for personal privacy and her own preferences to make that home a secure world and a family subculture that represented ultimate security. My parents shared and passed on to us a love of C.S. Lewis's Narnia. And in the last chapter of the last book, Farewell to Shadowlands, part of that, which part of it mum had written out again in her beautiful calligraphy and given to dad on his 70th birthday and was on the wall in Meagle, Aslan speaks to the children saying, you do not yet look as so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. Have you not guessed, said Aslan. Their hearts leapt with wild hope. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan slowly. All of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. Mum has reached the place where there is never any more separation. And as she now knows all she needs to know about all God's providence in her life, she will be able to add the delight of praising him that as Psalm 119 says, you are good and everything you do is good. By sure and certain knowledge, not just by faith as we see it. She'll know why so many partings and separations were right and needed and the cascading good that came from those. But not because the joy of heaven is an explanation. No, all that is needed is one glimpse at the lamb on the throne and all questions will vanish. Just adoring him, she will know that, of course, he is good and all he does is good. Mom is experiencing that truth. And the truth that Revelation 21.4, as we heard it read, says... Not that he will send one of his angels with a Kleenex, but that he himself will wipe away every tear. Now I know that mum is home, truly home. At the end of a life set on pilgrimage, that at the end of a life of partings, her tears have been wiped away. And she is there where there are never any more partings or separations. And she is truly whole. That beautiful God-given mind and smile. And best of all, the character, so beautifully a copy now perfected of Jesus himself that was fashioned and honed in the place of so many partings. As a family, we've been grateful for so many comforting cards, letters, conversations, and gracious, generous testimonies to the impact of her life on so many here. Indeed, it is true that she loved the Lord Jesus and served and followed him all her life, but she would have been most severe with me if I had implied that our confidence in that was based on how close, the confidence that she is with him is based on how close that she had followed and loved the Lord. It is not, not even with the love-biased, well-intentioned, God-honoring testimony to her life and the quality of it. No, she is home now because Jesus left his home with the Father to come to earth to find her, and she lived as she lived, always in response to that fact. Now, Sinclair Ferguson is going to come and bring uh, God's word to us. I want us to read some very familiar words from the book of Psalms, from Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David and boys and Macbeth family, it's an honor to be something of a mouthpiece of all of us who are here uh, to thank you for sharing Adele with us, for the blessings of having known her. Uh, The same C.S. Lewis, who's just been quoted, uh, once wrote that one of the comforts and blessings that Christians experience in the death of a loved one is that they see their lives whole and in the round, and they hear from others who have seen from outside the family circle uh, aspects of the one they have loved that they themselves never knew connections with people. And I think it would have been a thrill to Adele to see so many connections uh, with her and Christian friends with one another who were able to come and celebrate together in her life. Um, I met Adele, uh, I think, first of all, in St. George's Tron, uh, when David and Adele came there to share in the work of the ministry there, and was amazed to hear that she could do cartwheels, um, (laughs) because my own impression of her uh, was of this superlative intelligence that probably only a few of us in the room knew of her academic excellence. Um, I think to be honest to those of us who who preached in her presence, uh, those uh, loving but steely eyes uh, that seemed to see through the preacher and uh, actually see through the sermon uh, could be quite intimidating David told me quite a while ago that uh, he, he used to go over his sermons with Adele before he, he preached them, and I never, had the, I never had the impudence to say to him what I thought, which was, I really admire your courage in doing that, not because of the quality of David's sermons, but because of the intelligence that seemed to me to radiate from Adele. And uh, I can imagine that the, the fierceness of that love, and that was, the, to me, the striking combination, the fierceness of the love, uh, must have been quite something to live with for the boys, for the five boys, I include David in the boys, who were brought up in that house knowing that their mother and wife could actually see with her X-ray vision right into their souls and sometimes not exactly approve of what she saw there. 
And it's wonderful for us to hear of the blessings that she was in your family circle. I think it's also true on a day like this that Christians become conscious that, if I can put it this way without trivializing it, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the living church of Jesus Christ, is in, in many ways like the TARDIS, Doctor Who's time travel, space travel ship, that the kingdom doesn't look particularly enticing on the outside, so long as you are outside of it. It may seem old and, and worn and perhaps even out of date, but as soon as you step inside, you begin to realize that it is completely contemporary and that it gives you connections in a sense, with the whole of space, with the whole of the planet. It gives you connections with, with the whole of history. And in a very real sense, as I've been thinking about Adele in these last days, and have been, to be honest, surprised that my mind has kept coming back again and again to the 23rd Psalm, in what, a, what an ordinary thing to read at a service like this. If you have been in the crematoria of Scotland, the hymn books themselves automatically open to Psalm 23. And we read Psalm 23 usually because we think it's talking about us walking through the valley of the shadow of someone else's death. But Psalm 23, it is much more like the description of a believer's life than a word of comfort to those who are left after anyone's death. And it's in that sense that I've been reflecting on these words in the light of Adele's life. In 1949, her father uh, published a little uh, memoir biography of a man called W.H. Aldous. Those of you who are connected to uh, the story of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship at least know his name. He was the home director, the United Kingdom director of what at that time I think was still the China Inland Mission. He didn't know that his future son-in-law at that time would uh, actually I suppose, take the place eventually of the man whose memoir he was writing. But in that little memoir, uh, Mr. Macbeth wrote of W.H. Aldous some words that just with the change of the pronoun seem to me to apply perfectly to Adele. He wrote, It is not outward events nor their effects that one recalls in thinking of her. These neither dictated nor determined her course. She did not live from the circumference, but from the center, and the center of her life was God. I think like the 23rd Psalm, all of us who knew Adele are bound to think of her life in three stages. Three stages that were centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It was Jesus, you remember, in John 10, who, reflecting on his own life and ministry, picked up the 23rd Psalm and said to his contemporaries, I am that good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. My sheep know me. I know them by name, and they follow me. And it speaks here, it seems to me, of three stages in Adele's life. First of all, the knowledge that Jesus Christ was her provision. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. David did not make these words up himself. He was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, the promise that God had given to the whole of Israel. I will supply all of your need. And David presumably had drawn the conclusion that if the Lord was able to supply all the need of all of Israel, then he was also able to supply all of his need as well. And the Lord did that in Adele's life right from the very beginning, in her home and in her family, in the education she received, in his watch care over her life, in leading her to David and David to her, in the way in which she was blessed with her boys, in the ministry in which she served with the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, in the way in which she and David were led home and served, as many of us here uh, know so well in St. George's Tron, so similar a building it may strike some of you as the one we're meeting in today, strikingly similar. And then the ministry again with the Overseas Missionary Fellowship and then home again to Scotland, uh, surrounded by the boys, uh, loving the Lord, loving his people. He all the time was her constant provision. And then while here, knowing the presence of the Lord in the most difficult stage of her life. Long life, dominated by a sense of Christ's provision. But all of us will know Adele as Adele pre-Alzheimer's, and then Adele Alzheimer's. And it's here that these words with which we are so familiar seem to me to take on a very special meaning. David says not only that the Lord led him, that the Lord restored him, but even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. These words are so familiar to us. This familiarity doesn't breed contempt, but Sometimes there are things in this psalm that we we once knew and noticed and have forgotten. And actually the most obvious thing at this point in the psalm is the one thing we tend to forget. That at this point, the psalm moves from a description, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, to a conversation. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You notice the 
the change may seem to be so subtle that it's hardly worth commenting on, but it's profoundly significant. And it seems to me to have a, a very special significance for us as we, as we think of those long years of Adele, pre-Alzheimer's, though we did not know it. And then these years of Adele with Alzheimer's. The Lord who so wonderfully showed himself to be her provision is the Lord who also in that darkness was her companion. The scene is this, that David has gone into what is literally a canyon of deepest darkness. And at that point, we are, we are excluded. We are not in that canyon. We are outside of that canyon. We cannot see into that canyon because that canyon is so dark. And Adele went into the canyon of deepest darkness. But the wonder of this psalm is it's almost as though from inside that deep darkness we, we hear a snatch of a conversation. Even though I walk in this canyon of deepest darkness, I fear no evil because you are with me. Actually, you, you know the Psalms are written in Hebrew. It's just two words. You with me. And for Adele, for us, who watched her go into that canyon into which we could not see, in which, in a sense, we could, we could hear no word. It's almost as though God's word is saying to us here, even here, especially here, I was with her. My rod and my staff, the rod to, to beat off the enemies, the staff to, to rescue the sheep if the sheep was in any danger. Your rod and your staff are my comfort and my strength. That made me think of another connection. Many years ago in the 1830s, as probably most of you know, in this room, during the absence of the young man who was the minister, the first minister of this church, Robert Murray McShane, there came an even younger man to preach in his absence. His name was William Chalmers Burns. When he preached here in McChain's absence, something very remarkable happened. People like us filling this building, a thousand people, more than a thousand people filling this building. And as he preached, many began to cry because of their sense of sin and need and were pointed to a living faith in Jesus Christ. And William Chalmers Burns disappeared, disappeared eventually to China to serve Christ there. And for a number of months in China, William Chalmers Burns and the man who founded the China Inland Mission that became the Overseas Missionary Fellowship with which David and Adele served so faithfully, so beautifully, Hudson Taylor and William Chalmers Burns for a short period of months became the closest of friends, 
fellow workers in the gospel. Hudson Taylor said it was William Chalmers Burns that helped to shape the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. Now, the connection is this. William Chalmers Burns was known in China as the man of the book. And that's how we know Adele Ellis, the woman of the book. We heard about it from within the family. I think even those who cared for her in her last days and and saw her love for the book might remember her even in the dark valley of Alzheimer's as still the woman of the book. And not because the, the book was in itself a special object, but because, as we know, she she knew the author and loved him. And there are these beautiful words that so much carry significance for us. As this conversation goes on, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. We usually think of that as a picture of a great banquet. Uh, perhaps if, if the, the picture of the shepherd and the sheep continues here, it's a, it's a marvelous picture of the shepherd who, who is strong enough to know that he can protect his sheep from the enemy. Even in, in the dark valley, they can have a banquet. But today, think of it in a completely different way. Because it is another beautiful picture of how the Lord deals with us when we are frail and weak. When, when we're not able to look after ourselves, to tidy ourselves, to wash ourselves. Think of this as the, the, the very sick sheep that the shepherd anoints with oil. Think of this as the weak person to whom the loving friend comes and puts a cup to their lips in order that they may have some, some liquid refreshment and the, and the cup runs over. In that context, it is, it is the most exquisite picture of the tender love of the Lord Jesus for those who go through the canyon of deep darkness. So, before Alzheimer's, during Alzheimer's, and now, after Alzheimer's, Christ has been her provision. Christ has been her companion. And Christ is now her destination. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That word follow is a very strong word. It can even mean harass. Which may suggest that those who have thought this imagery of the shepherd and the sheep carries all the way through this psalm are right. And if one could put it this way, if, if you had asked David what the names of his favorite sheepdogs would be, he might have said, well, I call one goodness and the other I call mercy. 
And they pursue, at times even need to harass the sheep until the sheep are eventually brought home for the night. And in fact, that's the, that's the root meaning of, of this word, I will dwell. It means I will, I will return home. I'll return home to the house of the Lord forever. A place that in a sense has, has already been familiar to Adele. You know, those words that were spoken about Richard Sibbs of that blessed man, let this just praise be given, that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And that was true for Adele. And so she, she really has gone home, gone home to the house of the Lord, gone home to see his face. When I wake in the morning, says the psalmist. I will behold his likeness. And that, you see, was the, with all the intimidating intelligence uh, and all that mingled with the cartwheels that the vast majority of us never saw, uh, what explains that combination was her likeness to Christ in this life and now her perfect likeness to Christ in the life she lives before his face. Dear friend of ours who works in some of the most dangerous places in the world for a Christian, recently told us of a man of whom he knew who was a forger, a skilled forger uh, in a distant land, he forged passports for people, passports that had been stolen. And he was given a passport that had been stolen, and for some reason he became fascinated with the face of the young woman whose passport he had been given to, to rework. He became, he became so, so narrowly focused, he, he wanted to find this girl, and of course he knew enough about her to try and discover where she was. He, he eventually found her. He was, he was absolutely uh, almost obsessed with her. And eventually, uh, after meeting her, he said, you know, I'm in love with you. And her reply was this, no, you're, you're not in love with me. It is that you have seen something of the loveliness of Jesus in me and you're being drawn to him. And we thank God today, we rejoice today, that that was true of Adele Ellis. I think if Adele had known I was going to be speaking today, and especially speaking from the psalm, she, she might have wagged her finger at me and fixed me with that super intelligent steely gaze and said, now Sinclair, Two things. Yes, the first is, whatever you do, speak about Christ and don't speak about me. I would have had an answer to her, at least on that count. I would have been able to say to her, Adele, but if I speak about you, it's inevitable that I speak about Christ. So I'm one up there. 
But the other thing she would have said, I'm quite sure, is Sinclair, make sure that everyone who is there knows that it was only because he restored my soul that any of these things were true of it. Actually, amazingly, you know, that's the Old Testament word for repenting, turning back to the Lord, coming to him in faith. Make sure anyone who has slipped away from Christ or has never come to Christ knows that he is still willing to receive them and that he will be all to them that he has been to me. I think of Adele in terms of another passage in the book of Revelation, the end of Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus speaks to a church but addresses us as individuals and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and comes and opens the door, then I will come in and sup with him or her and he with me. That's the explanation for Adele's life, isn't it? She opened the door. He came in. They supped together. They supped together when he was making provision for her. They supped together when he was the companion for her in Alzheimer's. And they are, in God's goodness, supping together now, today. And we pray that uh, little touches of that heavenly communion will fall down on the Alice's and on the Macbeth's and on us. And that all the prayers that Adele surely prayed for so many of us uh, will come to fruition. And one day, uh, when she stopped doing the cartwheels, we will see her. And so we look forward to the day, especially the boys look forward to the day now that they have even more treasure in heaven than they had just a few short days ago of seeing her face to face and seeing him face to face and knowing that it was all true. Thank God it's all true. Let's pray to God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the graciousness of your word. Thank you for the way in which it points us to the graciousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the way it also describes for us the graciousness that you worked into the life of Adele Ellis. Father, as we think about her today, in one sense we would want this day to last forever so that the sense of your presence with us, the memories we share with one another, the blessings of the goodness and mercy that followed her all the days of her life might be as fresh to us as, as they are in these hours. 
You carry your lambs in your bosom and you lead gently those who are with young. And then you set us down in order to learn to walk again in a new way. And as we give you thanks for Adele, we pray for ourselves as individuals and for one another as so many of us are long-standing friends and fellow servants of Jesus Christ, that as you let us down for the rest of our pilgrimage, let us down to walk the rest of the way without the presence of Adele, that you will be with us, that your rod and your staff will comfort us, and that one day too we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to close by singing in Christ alone. And then after we've sung this, Peter Rowan, the National Director of OMF, will come and pray. And then we'll sing uh, the benediction, How Good is the God We Adore. When we come to sing the benediction, the band will play through uh, the tune first. Uh, Then after that, just simply to say, first of all, on behalf of the family, thank you all for coming. Uh, There is uh, food, snacks, and uh, drinks, and so on, which will be served through in the hall. For those of you who have to leave, uh, there will be, the family will meet you uh, at the door uh, on the way out. But uh, if you're staying for food and you're all welcome to stay, uh, basically just make your way through. There won't be enough room in the hall for everybody, so feel free to bring it back in here. Um, and you'll have an opportunity to speak to the family there as well. So basically, just if you're leaving, go to the door uh, for the lineup. Otherwise, you'll speak to the family afterwards. So we'll sing this first, and then we'll stand to sing. Then please be seated as Peter Rowan comes to pray, and then we'll stand and sing uh, the benediction. In Christ alone, my hope is found. I first met Adele and David at a candidate's course that my wife and I attended in 1997, uh, joining OMF. Candidate's courses are a serious thing. There were no cartwheels, but there was wise and godly leadership, which so many in OMF over the years have deeply appreciated. Let's pause and let's reflect a little on what has been preached, what has been said, and then I will pray. Father of compassion, God of all comfort, We worship and adore you. You are the living, powerful, wise and good God, shepherd and guide and provider of your people. And you've spoken to us today through your word. Thank you, Lord. And we thank you that 
Adele's life, her work produced by faith, her labor prompted by love, her endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus has lifted all our eyes today to you, our faithful, loving, and promise-keeping God. And we lift up to you again, Lord uh, David, along with John and Mark and Graham and Paul and their families, and we ask that you would surround them with your loving and tender care. Give them your help in the days ahead, your personal, wise, immeasurable help. And for all of us here today, Lord, please would you take your word and plant it deep in our hearts so that we would be people who live all our days in the light of eternal realities, seeking to do your will, living for your glory, and anchored always in the midst of all of life's uncertainties and shadows, anchored always in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And now, Lord, as you have promised, would you keep watch over our coming and our going, both now and evermore. In Christ we pray. Amen. And this benediction may not be familiar to you all, but there's enough of the OMF family here to carry this. And I think the tune will be simple. The words are deep and will mean a lot to David and the family, I think. So let us sing this benediction together. Thank you. family will go to the door and those who are leaving.